Craft Beer Radio coverage of Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. Salon number six. He said beer, she said wine. A debate on food pairing. Presented by Sam Collagioni, owner, Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, and Marnie Old, Assistant Dean French Culinary Institute. Sponsored by Draft Magazine. Who said no? Go back out there and have some fun. This is a very special event, very special evening. This is historic, as a matter of fact. Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. Beer has finally gone upscale. And it's about time. It's overdue. It's time for craft beer to claim back that beer and food go so well together. Wine's had its window of time. Marnie. All right, this is their show, though, so I won't go there. So just real quick, what's a craft brewer? Craft brewers are smaller producing. They're 2 million barrels of beer a year or less. That's small. Independently owned. They don't have big marketing dollars, big advertising dollars. What they do have, though, is something very special. They have you. They have you that we hope are going into your local restaurant saying, hey, thanks for carrying my local beer, or hey, damn it, carry my local beer, right? And we want you to tell your friends to be doing that. And with this grassroots effort since the 80s, actually since 1978, when Jimmy Carter made it legal to homebrew, things have been percolating up, percolating up, percolating up. Now we can stand on the same stage with wine and not defend ourselves, but school them. Right? Okay, so I want a quick uh, house cleaning announcement. We have cups in front of you. Please be aware that you're in very good hands with these cups. These cups are used in the judging situation at both the Great American Beer Festival as well as the World Beer Cup, which is the Olympics of beer. Brewers Association puts on both of those events, and our professional judges use these cups. They're odorless, tasteless, will not impart any flavor into your experience here this evening. So to make Savor possible... Um, uh, besides the Brewers Association organizing it, we had Reyes Beverage Group, who's our presenting partner. Anyone, anyone from Reyes in the room? We, well done, guys. We really want to thank you. I mean, to, to do a first-year event like this and to do it right, it took the kind of support. So, Reyes, thank you for all you've done for all the beer service and support. Also, Draft Magazine is sponsoring specifically this educational salon. So we're going to have Evan give a few words to us on what's up with Draft, and then I will introduce Sam and Marty. Wow, a lot of pressure. Um, I'm Evan Hughes with Draft Magazine. Uh, we're extremely excited to be involved with Savor. Uh, it was a, I think everyone will agree, a great event. Um, we're also really excited to be the, the sponsors for the, the final breakout session um, for the first, which is going to be an annual Savor event, I think. Yeah, Maybe. We're not committing yet. And since no one came in here to hear me speak, I'm going to turn it over to our our celebrity um, panel here. There you go. Um, Draft Magazine is great. Draft Magazine. Is it 200 subscribers? 277,000 circulation. 200,000. I mean, that's incredible. A lot of people. Draft Magazine, great publication. It outs all the Hollywood stars that are drinking good beer. We're trying to spread it. the word. <laughs> One celebrity at a time. All right, well, thank you to Draft Magazine for sure. Thank you, Evan. So just to make it clear, when the Brewers Association went through the um, process to decide where we should have this event, we picked D.C. for a reason. You guys have an amazing beer culture, and we knew we were in the seat of power, and it's American Craft Beer Week right now. Had anybody heard that? American Craft Beer Week? Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report just reported to everybody that it was American Craft Beer Week. That's a coup. These, these brewers out there are really making the big time, and it's a huge compliment. So what I want to do, you guys have heard about these folks. You probably haven't even seen these folks. They're making the argument of beer versus wine, an accessible argument. It's an intellectual argument. It's a great, thoughtful duke out. So go ahead, 
Sam Calgione and Marnie Old, show us your stuff. Well, I'm not sure about that intellectual part, Julia. Um, if anyone here knows Sam as well as I do, you might guess that for him it's kind of an anti-intellectual argument. Is that correct, Sam? Yeah, there's really no intellect uh, here. It's actually, it's all in the in the glasses. It's not about talking. It's actually in the glasses on our side of the table. But go ahead, go ahead. Uh, all right. Well, first off, I know that many of you know my co-author, Sam, but if you haven't met me before, my name is Marnie Old. I'm the director of wine studies at the French Culinary Institute in Manhattan, sommelier for years, working in fine dining restaurants in Philadelphia. I, I do a lot of teaching, a lot of writing, a lot of uh, all sorts of anything I need to do to sing for my supper in the wine world. But uh, Sam and I crossed paths a number of years back, and we've been doing a little work together ever since. Sam, why don't you let them know who... You are, and where well, you're from. Um, well, first of all, I should, I should say, while we'll go to each other's throats a bit, Marnie knows uh, pretty much almost as much about beer as she does about wine and actually hosts a number of beer tastings as well. So she's one of us at the same time that she's uh, defending her beverage. But we actually met at a very intellectually stimulating hemp beer tasting uh, <laughs> at Monk's Cafe, uh, maybe... 10 or 12 years ago, from what I remember. Uh, and some of them actually came from Amsterdam. So they yeah, were, it was a U.S. versus Amsterdam hemp beer. So it, no contest, It by was the pretty way. great. And then, but after that, we uh, worked together on a project where our brewery opened in 95, and our average beer since the day we opened was 9% alcohol made with six ingredients. And we, as a brewery, we always thought that beer deserved its place at a fine, uh, fine dining uh, situation, its rightful place just next to wine. And we all we sold our beer in that context of pairing with food. And so we worked with Marnie to, to kind of uh, bridge the gap between wine nomenclature, wine vocabulary, what we were trying to do on the beer side. But we did it over our whole portfolio of beers. And 28 beers later... One night in Rehoboth at yeah. his brew pub... 28 dogfish beers. As right. you can imagine, by the end of the night, we were both kind of feeling yeah. our oats. Yeah. It, started, it started out as like uh, notes of pit fr- fruit and tobacco and ended up as, no, beer's fucking better than wine. No, <laughs> wine's better than fucking beer. And so we're like, all right, let's actually do this. And, 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 and you know, the, the thing is that we needed a neutral party because we clearly couldn't answer this with just beer people or wine people around the table. No matter what we did, we had this giant bias to counteract. So we came up with the idea of doing beer versus wine dinners where the voting was on the part of the audience, on the part of the participants, where at each course we would do five courses. We would pair a beer that Sam chose and a wine that I chose and ask people to cast an anonymous ballot about which one was their preferred pairing. And we kind of knew going this, and, and we were, in, in, our, in our book, we do talk a lot about the fact that while our, our, our goal is to lay down some objective guidelines on how your five senses work in the context of what you're eating and what you're drinking. But at the end of the day, those objective guidelines are only meant to send you in the direction you, sh- you want to go in because everybody's palates are subjective. And at the end of the day, if that weren't the case, we would all be drinking the one style of beer that would work for everyone. And frankly, that almost happened about 30 years ago and it sucked. Uh, And you guys made sure that that didn't happen on behalf of the 48 breweries in that room representing the 1,400 breweries in America uh, that are very thankful to bring back the diversity of beer. Marnie's beverage of choice has had a little bit longer history of being very uh, uh, open-minded to the breadth of styles, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. When you say wine to people, there's no one color or style that comes to mind. We have everything from champagne to cabernet, everything from pink rosé to port and everything in between. Whereas for beer, for a long period of time, and and I think for many people in the United States, it's still true that you say the word beer and a single yellow fizzy picture comes to mind, right? It's only now that the craft brewing movement is doing a good job of broadening that rainbow of styles that come to mind when people say beer. And And there's really only, there's kind of two reasons why Beer has had a hard time, in my mind, finding its place at that white tablecloth restaurant or in a scenario like tonight with the kinds of foods that we're having. One, frankly, is a financial thing, where as brewers 10, 12, 15, 20 years ago, we would go into a restaurant and say, you know, you have this amazing beer wine list of uh, hundreds and hundreds of bottles, but you have seven variations of essentially the same exact style of beer, the light lager. Maybe one's in a green bottle. Different colored stickers. Yeah, cool, cool different colored stickers, green bottle, white bottle. 
brown ball, but essentially the same light lager style in a world of styles that is infinite, right? But at the end of the day, those sommeliers, those restaurateurs, those, those managers recognize that wine contributes much more profits uh, to, to the bottom line when, when a table orders it than beer does. So they want to de-emphasize the, the beer. They don't want people to order the beer. And what happened was you guys made, made, made things go in the right direction where you demanded more choice and they said, okay, well, I guess they will want a $8 bottle of Omegang or maybe a, a Chimay or a Dogfish or a Stone or a Rogue. And so things really started to gain traction in the last uh, few years. The other thing, frankly, is over 90% of the beer drunk in America is that light lager style. And it's probably the least uh, exciting style to pair with food. So the big breweries that brew those beers didn't spend a lot of time trying to think about how, how convincing you to try their beverages with food. They said, our beer is cool because uh, animated lizards drink it or... You know, mud, mud wrestling chicks drink it, or whatever it was. Swedish it, bikini teams. Swedish bikini teams drink it. And, and so that's kind of what happened. And it's so cool that those multi, multi million dollar advertising campaigns didn't matter. Those big breweries are growing 1.4%. The flavorful beer category is growing over 10%. And at the same time that people are trading up in the beer industry, more accessible, more affordable wines are coming from your side of the industry, right? Absolutely, that's true. I think that if we went in the Wayback Machine a couple hundred years ago, there's no question that the products that were on offer within the wine industry as compared to what was on offer within the beer side, within the fermented beverages made from grain... There was a serious difference of aspiration historically, and, and this doesn't surprise me. We argue a lot about history. I mean, Sam tries to tell me that because there's older archaeological evidence of brewing, that that somehow makes beer superior to wine, whereas personally, I just think it shows that once we figured out how to make wine, you know, we, we, we moved our priorities a little bit. And, and to be serious for a second, I think we all, those of us who are here, recognize that the thing that adds layers of complexity and flavor interest to these products that we're here to enjoy and love, whether we're attending a beer event, whether we're attending a wine event, largely come from the action of yeast, from that miracle of fermentation. There's nothing really that separates beer from wine qualitatively any more than it separates sake or cider. It's that action of fermentation that creates the magic that we all love. Not to mention the alcohol that we all love, too, right? And I think that that's one of the reasons that when, um, well, I think it's pretty obvious that wine has more of a history of food pairing. I mean, it goes back a much much longer period of time in terms of being intellectualized with food. And it's nothing against beer. I, I swear, if, if beer had been described as the blood of Christ a few thousand years ago, I think you guys would be in the top seat right now, okay? But the reality is that throughout European history, there was a slightly larger motivation to aspire to greatness within winemaking, to try to produce something regardless of cost, regardless of effort, regardless of patience required, that was dedicated far more often to winemaking in history than it was to beer. And so I don't blame you guys for the lower rank on the, on the ladder that you're occupying right now. And I, I, I cheer your, your efforts to climb. And honestly, I do think that beer belongs on the table alongside that's wine. But this whole idea of beer being better, that's where we disagree. I'd like to give it up for the bronze medal winner of the most well-drunk or velocity-drunk adult beverage in America behind the silver winner distilled spirits and the gold winner beer. Wine! Third place! Third most voluminous adult beverage drunk in America. Well, volume is something that you require when you're so weak. You lack potency. You guys in the beer world, clearly there's something missing in this beverage okay. where people feel the need to pound pints. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, you guys have been to those fancy restaurants where the sommelier comes up and they go through their whole dog and pony show and they produce the bottle and they do the thing and the, the cork and then you smell and you taste the cork. Do you realize that that whole dance, that whole dance is about the fact that like one in 20 bottles in their industry is fucked up? And, and, and that whole thing is like, oh my God, oh my God, does it suck? Does it suck? Tell me We're if it doesn't on suck. That. Does We're it suck? I hope it doesn't that. suck. We're working on that. It, just, just so you know, we are. We are. I swear. Screw caps rock. 
Bag in the box, even better, 20 years from now. Imagine getting the pint port at your local beer bar and then being like, uh, I don't know, is it good? Is, is it okay? Does this taste all right? I don't know, right? A little bit? Well, you a know, I, I will tell you, Sam, that I advocate crown... There are countries yeah. in the world where you can get wine box under a crown wine. cap. It makes more sense, frankly, than corks. But I understand why people feel the need for this ritual and mysticism when it comes to wine because they view it as something so tremendously special, something somehow that they don't really think as often about beer. I'm not sure why that would be, Sam, but they, they reserve this special place, this occasion celebration mentality when it comes to opening a special bottle of wine. And so they like that layer of ritual that kind of speaks to the history of winemaking. Right. I can understand why, because it's like all the stuff that happens outside of the drinking has to make up for what happens when you're Well, you drinking. know, we will see how that works, Sam. Um, I, I think that we have some beer yes. and wine to Let's drink, do don't this. we? Yeah. And, and as you guys can see, we go at each other's throats, and we really do prefer our respective beverages. But the whole exercise of savor, of he said beer, she said wine, is really about making beer people comfortable with think about wine and food together and making uh, the opposite true of whatever I just said. And we do have to recognize that when, when Sam first brought me on board to help promote Dogfish, um, the idea was to do a, a series of promotional dinners where I would be the wine voice up against beers that, if I remember correctly, one of the words you used to use to describe those beers to, to, to help promote the idea of dogfish as a quality brewery, wasn't wine-like in some of your descriptive materials? Uh, it's like wine-like beers. Well, clearly you guys need a, li- a little rubbing of shoulders to get some of that, those laurels there. But in any case, when we started doing these dinners, we both really felt like the results were going to be determined by the location. If we went to a beer bar, it was clearly going to be a landslide for beer. And if we went and did this at a wine festival or a fancy fine dining palace, the results would favor wine. But I got to tell you, one of the reasons that we pitched this book, one of the reasons that he said, she said has become what it is now, is that Every time we did this, it was nearly a draw. Came down to a handful of votes at the end of the day. I think we've done 22 dinners in seven years. She's up by one right now. Uh, So it's up to you guys. It's almost always (laughs) 50-50. And the best part about it is, is that when we do an event, no matter what preconceptions people bring, whether they're beer geeks or wine snobs, whatever it is they were before they walked through the doors, when it comes to tasting, it's personal. Neither one of these products has any significant edge at the end of the day. Unless, oh, well, maybe wine a little bit if we take the dollars out of it. You know, that's the one downside with wine is that you have to be kind of the globetrotting millionaire to drink the best wines. One. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it really is about you and about what you prefer. I couldn't tell you what you like better with any of these dishes any more than I can tell you whether you prefer key lime pie or chocolate cake. So our book is more about figuring out how taste works and feeling your way around the sensory science of putting food with two different very distinctive beverages, with beers and with wine. So I think we're about ready to go. You... So we got one question already. Throw, throw sure. Question out there if you got one. Or, what are you doing? Just giving a amen? Like a... Okay. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Okay, cool. No worries. We'll go into the go into the tasting, right? So we have three different food items on your tasting plate that are there, each one designed to go with a pair of beverages. So the first pair of wine and beer that are poured for you are already in your glasses. And this is going to be designed to go with the chips and spicy salsa that's on your plate. And if you looked when you sat down, there was a sheet that looked like this with Sam and I's face. If you turn that upside down, put us facing the table, you've got a little cheat sheet that'll walk you through our pairings and our wines and beers on the reverse. So our first pairing is going to be tortilla chips with spicy salsa. And Sam, why don't you tell us about the beer that you put with this dish? All right. This beer's uh, from my brothers from another mother at Stone Brewery. Out in San Diego, they were just the host. You guys love Stone? Uh, They were the host breweries at Craft Brewers Conference that just helped happen in San Diego. And what I try to do is find three breweries that are kind of flying their own freak flags and uh, doing their own thing, but actually spend a lot of effort and energy thinking about their beers in the context of food. And if you go to the Stone World Bistro, their amazing restaurant there, you can see how, how seriously they take this stuff. 
This is a departure of you fellow beer geeks as far as uh, smoked beers. Uh, probably the, uh, the, the, the template has been set by Alaskan Smoke Porter, which has a much more pronounced smokiness. They go to a salmon uh, house right next to them uh, and get this intense Alderwood uh, smoked uh, uh, grain to use in, the, in that porter. This is more subdued. It's a, uh, from the Scottish. It's basically from the whiskey distilling industry, the peat smoke uh, malt that, that Stone uses for this. But... I don't know if any of you guys attended uh, the, the last talk, but uh, Ray from Food and Wine was saying uh, one of the real, real Achilles heels uh, for wine is spicy foods. And in essence, the reason for that is spice on your palate acts as a magnifying glass. Uh, and base, or I should say alcohol with spicy food acts as a magnifying glass. If you, if you eat spicy foods and then you have a, an extremely or, or stronger beverage, it's going to amplify that spiciness and make it, frankly, unpleasant unless you're a sadomasochist freak, which is fine. Um, uh, so what I did is I tried to choose a beer that's relatively uh, at a normal beer ABV alcohol level, but has a lot of flavor and works really well with the, with the smoky spiciness uh, of the salsa that you have. And of course, the corn chip is nothing more than, uh, uh, you know, like a, uh, a, a domestic lager in solid form because uh, of the use of adjunct grains. Okay. All right, so he chose the smoked porter to go with the spicy salsa because it was relatively modest in alcohol. And this is a similar pairing strategy that we use within the wine universe as well. Alcohol is perceived on your palate as a burning sensation. And and let's be honest, it's kind of somewhere in the pain family of sensations. It is a burning feeling. And when you put high alcohol wines with spicy food, it makes them feel more painful. It in intensifies, inflames the burn. It's kind of like pouring a gas can over the barbecue. And many wines are significantly higher in alcohol (coughs) than most beers, even Sam's. And the norm within the wine universe is usually between 12 and 14% alcohol. So when we look to spicy foods like spicy salsa, like curries, like some of the Southeast Asian cuisines... We often look to wine styles that are on the very delicate, low-alcohol end of the spectrum. Like, for example, this Riesling from Germany. This comes from one of the coolest climate-growing regions on the planet for making fine wine. What that means is that less sunshine and warmth develops less sugar in the grapes, which converts to less alcohol content in the wine at the end of the day. Lighter-bodied is something that we associate with cool climate regions like Germany. Now, to me, the other asset that this wine has to go with this spicy salsa, well, there's really two. One is the natural sweetness that's present on the tip of the tongue. You notice right when you sip it, it has this almost kind of Granny Smith apple sweetness right there that acts to kind of soothe the spicy heat on the tongue. Sweetness is one thing, unlike alcohol, that can mitigate that spicy burning sensation in the mouth. But the other thing is that it's very tart. You notice that it's not just sweet, it's sweet tart. There's that high acid thing happening here that is so rare in beer, but which is very common in wine and which is a tremendous pairing asset. As a matter of fact, wine's acidity is both its blessing and its curse. It's the thing that makes it such a remarkable food partner, but can sometimes leave it tasting less than overwhelming on first impression. In this case, though, with the tartness, the natural acidity in the tomato salsa, the natural sweetness in the tomato, the spicy heat, I love this Riesling combination. I think it's really remarkable. And I know that nobody really thinks of wine when they pull out the chips and dip in front of the TV with the ball game on. But I'm telling you, it tastes good. That's the whole idea. Tell tell us about the producer and what this uh, bottle would retail for. I tried to pick wines that are... uh, relatively modest in price. This is a wine that in the D.C. area would probably retail between 8 and $11, depending on your retailer. It's a Riesling grape from a region called the Mosul in northern Germany, and the producer is Losen. Dr. L is the name of this entry-level affordable brand from them. It's their easygoing, affordable style. They are known for some very specialty single vineyard wines, but this is their easily accessible product. It even comes with a screw cap. Wow, that's convenient. One-handed access. That went well. Now, Julia, do we want to do uh, 
hand votes or just kind of walk through these? Or how do you want to do this? We or? could do Showtime at the Apollo style if you want. We could do <laughs> the, uh, everybody down with that. You guys know what I mean, right? Okay. This means that you're going to have to make some noise. And the reason that I, I like this although maybe perhaps not the best choice for me at a beer event. I, I know I, I might be I've the been loser. To wine events. Like... <laughs> I've been to wine events. <laughs> is, that, is that it allows you to vote for both with different levels of enthusiasm based on your preference. Because I know that one of the things we encounter when we do these events is that people like both. They just might prefer personally one a little bit more than the other. Yep. All right, so walking through this, uh, why don't we give it up on the amplified uh, clapping Yahoo meter uh, if you guys preferred the, the beer with this tasting. All right, all right. I, I know you guys all are in love with Sam, but, you know, you can, we're, we're talking about the beer here, not just, not just Sam meter, right? <laughs> And okay, and how many people, what do you guys think about the wine with the chips and spicy salsa? We're, we're going to leave that, um, well, actually, that'll be tough to collect. We won't get a sense of it. So I'm going to let Julia make a, a call there between whether that was wine, beer, or a tie. Up to you. Poor Julia. And wine. Okay. Let's hear it for Riesling, man. I mean, oh my I, there's a reason. I got to tell you, I have a soft spot in my heart for Germany. They make my favorite beers and my favorite wines on the planet, all in one little country. I don't know how they do it. But, um, but I'm sure Sam will catch yeah. up a little bit here as we move on. I'm not a big fan of the Rheinhutzkebutt, so <laughs> Germany and I don't get along so well. There you go. Oh, there's, that's the spirit. That's the spirit. All right, so one down. Uh, this is like a, a Shakespeare play, a two brute. You guys kind of <laughs> left me. You left me hanging, guys, but that's fine. This has happened every time we've done a dinner. I think we've done like 22. It's actually kind of cool to watch people that came in the door that were hardcore beer people have to say, damn it, on that course, the wine actually worked better. And that happens just as often from the wine side of the aisle. And so that's what it's all about. Just don't let it happen again. Okay, let's do this. Okay, so the next... <coughs> Pardon me, he made me inhale my cheese there. Pardon me. <laughs> so the next bite we have is that bite of cheddar cheese that you have there. And be sure to save enough of it to go back and forth with the two beverages that you have. I'm going to talk about the wine first. In this case, you can see that we've moved from the white wine realm into the red wine family. And what we have here is a Cabernet Sauvignon, one of the top grape varieties for making fine red wines, largely because it has a long track record of being refined for quality purposes, whereas many grapes were for centuries used more for volume production rather than for small-scale specialty items like this. But Cabernet Sauvignon has extraordinarily thick skins and small berries. And what that means to the winemaker is that there's a lot of skin contact in the tank during fermentation, which imparts tremendous degrees of color and flavor into the final product. When we give this wine a sniff, this style has that distinctive kind of dark berry, blackberry, plum, blackcurrant quality, as well as a kind of almost Mediterranean roasted tomato or olive background, a little bit cedary. And when you give it a taste, this red wine delivers two things that we associate with this style that are not necessarily good for just quaffing alone. This wine is not what I would drink at happy hour bellying up at the bar. It needs food that is high in both salt and fat because the wine is high in acid, which needs to be blocked by salt in the food. It's also high in tannin. Do you feel that sensation on the tongue? Almost like somebody's dried off your tongue with a paper towel, huh? You know, or wallpapered the inside of your mouth with suede, you know, giving you a whole new look in there. It is astringency that comes from the solid skins as well as the barrels which are used in the winemaking process and that requires fat to block it this is not a wine for sushi 
or salad. This is a wine for steak and cheese. And there's a reason that we have wine and cheese parties and not wine and cookie parties, okay? And that's that we need this combination of richness and savory goodness, salt and fat in equal measure to put wines like this into their natural context. Really delightful pairing, if you ask me. Sam, how about the beer? I'm surprised you found that such a good pairing. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, basically we we did a a a talk today or a panel this morning with jim cook and tommy arthur and and peter from new belgium myself with lauren from uh wine enthusiast and the 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 consensus was when that we were asked by the wine community what is the most overrated uh pairing of wine and foods it was wine and cheese basically we feel that beer works especially well with the last two things you're having chocolate and cheese one of the main reasons is as marnie said high fat content basically fat on your palate basically it coats your palate and a carbonated beverage acts as an exfoliant clears your palate off so you're ready for that next taste of what you're having. Let me put this in something we all understand. Think of cheese as a prophylactic on your tongue, right? And you're trying to feel some sensation, right? You need to take that off and experience the full sensation of what you're enjoying. And beer allows you to do that. And I did want to go... I did want to go in a place with a, with a pairing that went outside of the traditional ingredients. As I said earlier, Reinhutzgebult, which is the German Puri Act of 1516, which basically mandated that in Germany, beer could only be beer if it was made with yeast, water, hops, and barley. Well, a lot of the breweries that you'll see out in that room have, uh, along with Dogfish Head, uh, chosen to deny that. And the wine industry is pretty much stuck with one ingredient. Uh, It's the grape. And just mathematically, complexity from an ingredient that has at least four ingredients, and when you bring things like spices and herbs and different yeast stains into the picture, it's infinite how complex beer can be. So, what I chose to do was to use a a beer from my friends at Rogue Brewery out in Oregon. This is a Soba, uh, the Soba Ale, Morimoto Soba Ale, uh, Iron Chef. Obviously, a guy knows a lot about pairings with foods and decided to do this project with Rogue. If you try this, it's a relatively low IBU beer, about 30 IBUs, international bitterness units. Doesn't get a lot of bitterness there, but it uses buckwheat, which is in sort of the rhubarb family, for a lot of the fermentable sugars. So it allows it to be a relatively low-body beer that has a nice complexity and that exfoliating quality from the carbonation and just delivers this sweet, smooth, complex, but not overwhelming flavor that works amazingly well, I think, with the cheese. Really? I I just find this beer a little subtle to me. Who thinks Sam should have brought the 90-minute? Right? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying, the whole scouring the palate thing, clean thing with the scrubbing bubbles. I, I, I kind of, I can visualize that, perhaps. Right. But Don't let her just... in your heads. Don't let her in your heads. <laughs> well, okay, okay. We, we can take this to the people, Sam. We can, we can ask and, right. see, and see what people think themselves. Okay, all right, let's do this. By the way, do, before we vote, do the thing. Have one more bite. Have one more bite of that cheese and have one more drink of that beverage and watch the way they taste through that whole process. Not just the aroma, but the flavors and how they linger on your palate. How much is that wine? This wine, uh, depending on the retailer, would be somewhere between 11 and $14 a bottle. And let's be fair here and remember that there are five to six glasses of wine per bottle. So you really need to compare those prices to six packs, not to single servings of beer. All right, everybody, go there, do their taste. You go first this time, Arnie. All right, so who prefers with the cheddar cheese the Cabernet from Chile? <laughs> respectable, respectable. I'll take that. And who prefers Rogue's Morimoto Ale with the cheese? <laughs> uh, wait, 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 wait. Shh, shh. Julia, do we need to have a recount there? Or? 
I don't know why I still agree to stand on a stage with this guy, but uh, uh, we, now that we've written the book together, I can't do much about it. So we're going to keep pushing forward into the realm of dessert, into a realm where, honestly, neither wine or beer has an edge in the American mind. Most people, when you say dessert, think coffee, right? I don't. <laughs> I don't. And I will, I will admit, Sam teases me a lot about how... Generally, dessert is one of the hardest courses for sommeliers to pair to, and it has to do with that same component in the wine that we mentioned earlier, the component that can be one of wine's great strengths, its acidity, especially when paired with savory, salty foods, can actually turn into a kind of Jekyll Hyde thing with sweetness because sugar makes wine taste more acidic and drier at the same time. And doesn't have as vivid an effect with beer. I, th- I guess the food just doesn't care as much about the beer. Is that right, Sam? Is that what you think? The that beer be? doesn't care that much about the food. <laughs> the beer tastes good regardless. Yeah, there are some foods that amplify the flavors in the beers. But and, and Marnie, I do do have noticed this because uh, there are certain pairings that I have liked uh, certain wines with better than beers. But there's never been a pairing where the wine didn't at least hold up. And Marnie's a uh, big enough woman uh, to admit that there are some times when a, a wine does not work at all with a food, whereas a beer kind of works. Would you say that's true? I think that that's true. I think that honestly, in the dinners that we've done, the most consistent voting course has been dessert going to the beer side because beer does not have that acid backbone that can be such a challenge in pairing with sweet desserts and, frankly, is also far more cost-effective per serving than most of the world's great dessert wines. I mean, that is one weakness of the wine side is that dessert wines tend to require a lot more dedication of vineyard acre per bottle and thus end up commanding high price tags. Although this one is a fairly good, decent example. This is a standard size bottle for $20. And this wine is really unusual. You may have noticed a couple funny things about this wine. It's red and sparkling at the same time. So beer-like? Would you call it (laughs) beer-like? All right. Okay. Okay. Maybe I deserve that one, Sam. Um, It is red and sparkling. It is a dessert wine from northern Italy, from a town very close to where they make Barolo and Barbaresco in the Piedmont district. And here they grow an unusual grape called Brachetto and make it into this low alcohol, sweet, sparkling style. And it's one of my favorites with chocolate. I'll tell you, this stuff tastes like strawberries and rose petals and black pepper all at the same time. It is really delightful with this dark, high cocoa content, high cocoa butter content chocolate that we have here from Askinozi. And how about the beer, Sam? What, what is, did you say actually, I know it's lower than the average ABV, but what is the ABV on this wine? Approximately 10%. And, and, uh, Low for wine, high for beer. Except in this example. <laughs> except here where we're, we're going. So um, no, I think it's a fine uh, wine. And it's actually, all three of these were less than $20 a bottle that Correct. you chose, which is pretty cool. Because that is, in my mind, one place that while, while wine is coming down slowly and beer is going up slowly in pricing... I don't fear that the stratification of the pricing of beer is ever going to reach that as wine. One of the things that I think is wonderful about our industry, the beer industry, is that in most, in most cases, and almost everyone I can think of, our pricing is relatively uh, democratic. And basically, the stronger, the, stronger beer, the stronger beer is to make, the more exotic the processes, barrel aging, those things contribute to uh, the cost of making our beers. And we pretty much, as far as I know of all the breweries that I'm friends with, we structure it so our profitability is relatively the same. It's just that sometimes it, it, it costs more to make a beer. So this is a relatively expensive beer. This is our worldwide stout. And it's eight, eight, 18-ish. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, the two-year-old, the 06. We were serving 06, or no, oh, yeah, 06 and 07 out there. And this is uh, the two-year-old. And uh, so it's going to be a little drier, a little less roasty, and a little more complex. But I, I do believe that, that chocolate and, and big roasty stouts are an ideal partner. And if you try, uh, the, 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 basically less because of the alcohol and more because of the roasty grains. And do your sips of each of these beverages and, and try, try the different beverages with this, with this chocolate. And this, to me, is my, my favorite pairing that our brewery is capable of. And to me, I, I will say that I think that they're far more evenly matched here than they have been earlier. And part of that is that 
both of these things, to me, the, your worldwide stout pairs well with chocolate for the same reasons that I like espresso with my dark chocolate, right? It's got that kind of dark, intense, coffee-like quality. Whereas to me, the brichetto has more of the same qualities that you would associate with raspberry sauce. I like raspberry sauce with my chocolate too. I'm not sure that I can choose necessarily between them, but but we're going to ask you to anyway. So they both <laughs> they're are both really good. You, can we just I, say, I, first say of the, all, they're both really good. Yeah, and I'd say the the beer choice, the worldwide's a little more of a contrasting choice, where even though it's a big big beer with a lot of unfermentable sugars in it, it's relatively dry and roasty. Whereas I think the wine choice, as Marnie said, is a more complementary choice where there, there, there's some sweetness in that wine. And there's some natural wine-like acidity in the chocolate. You notice that when you eat high-quality chocolate, this ain't no waxy Hershey's stuff, okay? You're getting that incredible wine-like finish, that real sharp acidity coming through in the finish. And I think that that is part of what makes it such a natural echo with the tartness, the fresh fruit qualities of that wine. And this, this, this chocolate, as, as the, for the last pairing, is, is from Askinosi uh, Chocolate Company, a uh, little boutique. They're about the size of a lot of our breweries out there compared to Hershey's, and uh, they're amazing, amazing artisanal chocolate. So look at Askinosi on the on uh, Google. Uh, but let's do this. Absolutely, you ready? Yeah, you you sure? Go first, you want me All to go right. first? All right, I'll go. Who likes the wine with the chocolate? It's good. <laughs> and who likes uh, the worldwide stout with the chocolate? This is uh, all I can say is there couldn't have better been a better occasion for us to tie this fucking battle than at Saber. <laughs> That's eleven to eleven. We she's won eleven of these, and Doug and and Beers won eleven of these. And so. I'll, I'll freely grant that to you. And honestly, I just have to thank you guys for voting once for wine because that is truly amazing. This could have been ugly. It could have been a blowout, right? Yep. And uh, again, Marty could have chosen. Two hundred, four hundred, thousand dollar bottles of wine, but it says a lot that she played within our little uh, beer pricing zone, which is pretty and relatively affordable, let's, right? Let's be honest; that's what people want to spend. Uh, my my impression, as somebody who writes for consumer magazines and who does consumer events, is that people are comfortable with fifteen dollars a bottle. For wine, that's that's about where our comfort level starts. You know, the higher you go from there, the more you feel like it needs to be a special occasion. But I do need to throw out some little housekeeping things here before we finish up. First off, Sam and I have written a book, in case we didn't mention it earlier, called He Said Beer, She Said Wine. And it just came out about a month ago. It's lots of fun, full of pictures, color on every page. And we are going to be retiring. I, I, she, she doesn't say that in front of wine crowds. She says, she says, the writing is really intellectual. For beer people, she says, it's got great pictures. <laughs> in any case, um, when we, we're going to take a few questions here. And then when we break, we're going to retire to Sam's station out there and bring our books with us. And we'll be there to personalize books if anybody we'll wants. We'll buy you a beer. We'll questions. buy you a beer. <laughs> if anybody wants books to take home tonight. And, um, and yeah. So Julia's going to go out and see if there are any questions for Sam and I. I know I saw some hands out there. Hi. Um, okay, so there's pineapple on the plate, and when I did it with the uh, the stout and the okay, like mm-hmm. what it is horrible with the stout. Why is that? Like chemically, why is yes, that? Yes, chemically. And, and personally, I think it's the high acid. There's a really sky-high level of acidity in pineapple, almost like lemon. And so it's almost like taking a, a, a little squeeze of lemon and then tasting the stout. To me, it clashes a lot with the bitter flavors that emerge when you roast grains to that deep, dark, roasty color end of the spectrum. But I'm, is that... I think it was color on your plate, you know, a little decor uh, from the caterers. But I agree. I agree with that. When you try that, it doesn't work. But if you try a fruit salad with, say, a relatively acidic beer like uh, a lambic or even certain hefeweizens, it'll work well. That's one of the one of the cardinal rules of pairing is that almost always you want like with like. So sweet goes really well with sweet. So also does acidic or sour go really well with acidic or sour. So the more acidity in the food, whether it's from tomato, pineapple, lemon, citrus, vinegar, the more acidity we look for in the beverage to partner with it. Hey, and question. then Julia has someone else in the back. Yep, two right here. 
So what is your thought about the ultimate pairing, like a black velvet, where you mix champagne with a stout or something Oh, like Wonder that? Twin Powers activate. I'm all for it. Um, personally, I like mixing things all the time, partly because I deal with consumers who are far too scared to play around with their beverages. I, I like to take a wine like this last one, the Brichetto, and serve it as a dessert course with a scoop of ice cream, like a float. It rocks. It's awesome. But part of it is that we... we, we we tend to stress a little bit too much about wine, and that's starting to happen in the beer world, too, where I see this kind of over-intellectualization of flavor, you know, where people start spending a little bit too much stress on the beverage and not relaxing enough. The, the reality is, if you're stressing out about your beverage, I have a simple prescription for you. I can show you how it works. It involves wrapping your hand around a glass, bending the elbow, tilt and swallow... This is not something that should induce stress, and, uh, and I would like to say that whether you're talking about beer or wine. Got another question right here? Good answer. Good answer. That's all I'll say. So this was a great event to, to pair the, the beverage with the food. Are you supposed to eat the food first and then drink, or drink first and then have the food, or does it really matter? That, that question was asked of the last pup panel of journalisms, and that, again, falls into that subjective thing, I think. But I, I, I lean towards trying the beverage first, I think mostly because then you know what you're getting into in terms of uh, mouthfeel, alcohol content, and, and it calibrates your palate a little better than starting with the food. And the other reason, I, I agree with Sam in that I like to try the beverage on a neutral palate first before I introduce the food into the mix when I'm evaluating pairings, partly because... I don't think very many of us realize how misleading our first impressions can be and how very different introducing food, how, how much difference can occur when you introduce food. Everything you put in your mouth changes the way the next thing tastes. Everything. And tasting the beverage alone gives you kind of a snapshot of what you might have thought of it on first impression, whereas you, when you come back to it with food, you sometimes see, see 180 degrees. I mean, in the United States, this is not something we understand so well. It's very common in Europe to understand this, but here, the best we can manage to come up with is to remember not to drink our orange juice right after brushing our teeth, right? Okay, question in the back. We were wondering about your suggestions for cooking with beer and wine as ingredients. We've tried cooking with some beers, but we've heard that IPAs can actually disintegrate food. So we were a little bit concerned about that. And we found that cooking with wine is a little, a little less risky. It's, it's kind of true that high IBU, high bitterness beers, whether they're you know, Imperial Pilsners or IPAs, when, it, when, a, when a beer's reduced, uh, the, the hoppiness, the bitterness intensifies. And that's why you know, a great dish to start with is, I, I think if you're doing it at home because it's almost foolproof, is a, uh, a mussel dish. And cook the mussels in I, a low IBU, a, a low bitterness beer like a Belgian white beer or a Hefeweizen. Uh, and that's kind of a very simple dish to, dish to prepare that's really good. But I heard they make mussels in wine, too. I don't See, I misunderstood. I thought they meant that strong IPAs like yours, Sam, actually disintegrate the food in the pan. <laughs> right? No, I, I, I cook with beer a lot, too. I mean, I, we, we, we have our personas. This is kind of our, our shtick. But let's be honest. I drink home, beer at home as often as I drink wine. And, Sam, I hear you have some Italian blood in you. He, he must drink wine on occasion as well. And both of them are remarkable additions to recipes. They can be substituted for virtually any liquid, whether you're talking about adding broth, any any. Any recipe that calls for bouillon or stock, try adding beer, try adding wine, try adding white or lager, try adding red or ale. You'll be really impressed with the results. It's really a lot of fun. Next question. question. Then we should go out there and enjoy these beers and foods for half an hour. We got a half an hour, people. Okay, last question of the evening. I hope this isn't too heavy a question, but I know it, it says he said beer and she said wine. I know you're he, you're she. Is there anything Thank more? To, is there anything more to that? Like something about the industries? Like more what? males drink beer. Tell us. Are we doing it? That's kind of personal. <laughs> <laughs> We're both married. Are you but... like together on this? No. What, what? Tell me more about the title. 
more about the title. I guess it, it, it is kind of a play on that War of the Sexes thing. But there is some truth if you look at buying patterns uh, that while women buy the majority of beer, the breweries that are a lot bigger than us that can do demographic research show that they're definitely buying it mostly for men. It's on the grocery list. What's that? <laughs> yes, they do. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, we're kind of playing off a little bit of a cliche, but at the heart of every cliche is a grain of truth. I don't think that it's true 100% of the time that women are the kind of Pinot Grigio and Chardonnay girls and that the guys are more the kind of ale guys. Um, but at the same time, that is something that seems to resonate with people. When we start talking about beer, it's often... A male-dominated conversation. I think women are a growing and strong influence on the beer world. And I think that's correct. Are you guys seeing more and more women? Look around this room. Right. I mean, just look out there. And... The demographic of beer drinking women seems pretty hot. And, and honestly, I, can, I, I think I can explain part of this, too, which is that until very recently, beer didn't taste so hot. Right? Oh, that's true. The reality is women have better taste. Uh, we just naturally have more sensitive instruments for tasting. Our sense of smell, our sense of taste is more highly calibrated. Hello, evolutionarily, we needed to recognize our kids in a crowd. That was what the whole better sense of smell was about. But I think that one of the reasons that more and more women are starting to get into beer is that finally you guys are making stuff that tastes good to drink. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And with that, I personally want to thank you guys for going down history uh, as being the, the last session of the first ever sold-out Saver event by the Brewers Association. And I would also like to say one other thing, which is that Sam... Sam is the founder of Dogfish Head Craft Brewery. He's a member of the Brewers Association on the board. And so it's not so hard for him to get brewers to support him and donate product for a competitive event like this. I'm, I'm a wine writer. I'm a sommelier. I don't make anything. And yet three wineries stood up here and were willing to put their products next to beer in a competitive situation. Those were Dr. Lucen with the Riesling, Concha Toro with the Cabernet, and Banffy with the Brichetto. And let's hear it for some forward-thinking yeah. wineries. And on that note, on that note, we'd be remiss if we didn't say, buy the fucking book, please, people. <laughs> Buy the book. Help us out. And and we have boxes of the book. We're going to be selling from Dogfish Head Station out there. Cash Beers and check on only me. tonight. Beers but of course, me. if you're thinking of buying a credit card, go to dogfishhead.com. That's the best way to buy it online. And thank you so much for coming out. We really appreciate the support. All right, everybody. Thanks, and we hope you enjoyed this Craft Beer Radio coverage of Saver. To find more, visit www.craftbeerradio.com slash Saver. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit www.craftbeerradio.com for more details. Everybody loves the stars, you